0: Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological
1: Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation.
0: Hello, and thank you for listening to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Ken Keefley and today we're speaking with Dr. Bruce Ashford, Professor of Theology and Culture here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Ashford is a Senior Fellow in Public Theology at the Kirby Lang Institute for Christian Ethics in Cambridge, as well as a Research Fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Furthermore, he is a participant in the Dulles Colloquium of the Institute of Religion and Public Life, now, Dr. Ashford has served as a political opinion columnist for several national media outlets and as a speech writer for a number of elected officials. He has written extensively on the subject of politics and the Christian life, including his books Letters to an American Christian and One Nation Under God, A Christian Hope for American Politics. We'll be speaking with Dr. Ashford on One Nation Under God in another episode of our podcast, so please be sure to tune into that uh, for that as well. Dr. Ashford has joined us today to discuss Letters to an American Christian, which addresses how Christianity should inform our understanding of American citizenship and political issues. Dr. Ashford, we're excited to have you with us today.
1: Great to be on the show. Thanks for having me on.
0: So the book, Letters to an American Christian, we are actually covering it in the mentorship program at Southeastern Baptist uh, at the CFC. And so uh, when I read the book, I thought I've got to uh, have a podcast with you in which we talk about what you cover in the book. Can you share with us what inspired you to write Letters to an American Christian?
1: Yeah, you know, so earlier, and uh, I think we covered this in an earlier podcast too, I, a few years before I had written a book, book entitled One Nation Under God in 2015. Well, in 2015, I was not aware of what would happen in 2016, and that we, uh, the election revealed a, a pretty significant shift in in our uh, political debates, and that uh, that in addition to big government versus small government, and maybe even more important than that, was Debates about open country versus closed country, economically, you know, putting priority on um, our own nation's economy and uh, limiting immigration, and so uh, some many of the issues changed. There was a, a, a lot more publicization of and concern about injustices in our cultural institutions and lots of protests and demonstrations. So I wanted to felt like I needed to write another book that was more up to date, and then I would also just mention the rise of Marxism and progressivism and on the, in the Democratic Party. Democratic Party have been uh, largely classical liberals who lean to the left. and has, I kind of miss them. Yeah, they seem like pretty good folks. And uh, now you have these movements, Marxist and progressive movements, that are both socially revolutionary. Social revolution is different than a political revolution. Poli- political revolution is limited. It, it uh, wants to replace one regime with another, one political arrangement with another. Social revolution uh, wants to burn it all to the ground and start over again. You've got ideologues that think that they can, they're they smart enough to get together, point out all the injustices and badnesses in each of the cultural institutions, start them all over again without any negative consequences. Social revolutions always are bloody, full of uh, enormously bad, uh, unintended consequences. You should never engage in a social revolution. That's just a tip from Uncle Bruce.
0: I, I find my—I said it facetiously, but I kind of mean it. There is a big difference that many do not realize— a big difference between a, a liberal and a leftist. Uh, you know, uh, a classic liberal uh, wants to broaden the tent and broaden our thinking to where we are willing to consider almost every viewpoint, whereas a leftist very much has an agenda. Uh, they're not trying to broaden anything. Uh, they're, out, they're out to win, and that's something that I think many people miss. The format, I mean, letters to an American Christian you know, telling a story through correspondence has an illustrious history uh, in, in works of fiction. I mean, I'm thinking the very first time I ever read a book that was like that, that it was written just as a correspondence of letters, was Bram, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I mean, as a boy, I'm reading that and I'm thinking, my goodness, these are just letters back and forth to each other. What's that all about? I doubt that you were thinking of uh, Stoker's Dracula as you wrote letters to an American Christian. I'm thinking more, I mean, probably more relevant or more uh, to 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 the idea at hand is perhaps C.S. Lewis's letters to Malcolm, or Charlie Shed's book Letters to Philip, uh, even maybe the Screw Tape Letters, or even maybe see our uh, uh, Sam Harris's uh, letter to a Christian Nation. Uh, there, there are a lot of uh, of of, of books of a similar format. Tell us about the format you're using here, letters to an American Christian.
1: Yeah, you know, so I enjoy the epistolary format and it gave me a chance, it gives you a chance to let your personality come out, to make jokes, cultural references, to, to write in a manner in which a person might have a conversation. And I had read Sam Harris's book, but then also had read Harris, you know, uh, to, to the left of us. And uh, But also I'd read Dinesh D'Souza's book 20 years ago called Letters to a Young Conservative. And it made me think, I'd like to write a book of brief letters. I'm going to have to pick a person I'm writing to. And I picked a college student because college students are hotbeds for political activism right now.
0: Well, that'll be my next and, question about the college you picked.
1: Okay. And, uh, and so I just picked a college student, and uh, and I'm having a conversation with him. He's a, he's a newly minted Christian, and he wants to rethink his... Political views in the light of his Christianity, and I'm coaching him against uh, an almost uniformly uh, left-leaning faculty and against uh, some bad forms of conservatism in his family. And so that's the that's the format.
0: Well, we we live here in North Carolina, and uh, uh, it, it, in our in our state, this beautiful state in which we live is it is an interesting mix of cultural conservatism. And yet, here in the RDU area, there are some rather progressive uh, institutions. The the letters to an American Christian, his name is Christian, and he's attending uh, Dupont University. Uh, gee, I wonder which school you had in mind when you wrote that. Of course, I also, uh, you and I have also read uh, Tom Wolfe's book, "I Am Charlotte Simmons," uh, and in it, uh, he's he's telling about a young Christian. Uh, lady who goes to uh, a very premier university in North Carolina called DuPont. Is there a little uh, intertextuality going on there? Where uh, you know, are you are you working with Tom Wolfe there? Tell us all about DuPont University.
1: Yeah, you know, there's a few different things in the book that are inside jokes or insider cultural references, and I was pretty sure that most of my readers probably would not pick up on the reference, but, you know, some would, and it would be kind of a little signal of what I'm trying to do, and you picked up on it immediately. And, yeah, so Wolf wrote in a a great book, a big one, a cinder block of a book uh, called I Am Charlotte Simmons, and it tells the story of a young girl who uh, went to DuPont University, which in his mind he had Duke University that fine, uh, regal, venerable institution just down the road from Southeastern Seminary, and she lost her way. And that I'm coaching, in this book, I'm coaching Christian, who's a politi- double major in political science and journalism. That's a little bit of my own background, coaching him not to lose his way. There was a study, I think it was in the News Observer, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. I probably won't get the numbers right, uh, but I think when they did the study that out of the political science and political philosophy departments, something like 88 out of 89 of them are registered Democrats, which just showed you the imbalance on many uh, campuses. And so in the book I, I coach him not to fall into the, the categories and assumptions of his primarily left-leaning professors, but also to reject some of the crony conservatism of his uncle and father because there's bad versions of conservatism that I would you know would want to caution people against and and that's what I did in the book to talk, try to show Christian to cut his own wake. Don't just take your cues from you, from the talking head at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock at night or the radio show host. Do some thinking for yourself because usually a secular political host' views and conclusions will not align exactly with what yours ought to be.
0: So then go ahead and elaborate then on what do you think some of the dangers of trying to separate our faith from our approach to politics? What what are those dangers and what happens?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first danger is that you can't. It's not possible to separ- separate your religious faith from your political views. And what I mean by that is uh, the Bible defines religion differently than uh, uh, many Americans might. Americans might say, well, religion is a formal and organized uh, uh, system of ceremonies and membership. And there are a lot of people who are not religious. but The Bible says that everybody's a worshiper. Everybody's religious. You want to find their religion, find their God you want to find their God, find whatever thing or person or deity that they ascribe ultimate allegiance to. So what is it that this person absolutizes? So the God of Jesus Christ, the Allah of Muhammad, um, is it sex, sexual pleasure, or wealth accumulation, or personal power, or the approval of other people, or success in life, or comfort, or, uh, or any other thing. And the Bible, it's interesting, more than 800 times relates religion to the heart. So religion and the heart are bound together. In the Bible, the heart is the central organizer of a person's existence. This is where life planning happens. And so if we have embraced a God in our heart of some sort, sex, money, power, Jesus, Allah of Muhammad, whatever, it is necessarily going to organize the way we approach any other realm of life, including politics. So if you find a person whose politics is not organized to some extent, by their religious beliefs, you've just found a person whose religion isn't, isn't really Christianity, something else. And there's good and bad ways, though, of bringing your religion into the political realm. Very bad ways of doing it. And so that's another whole discussion for another whole day.
0: Well, I, I do or, have... We, or today, even, y- if you Yeah, want. I do yeah. have some questions about how we, we might do that. You do bring up an important point that uh, all individuals, uh, they can't help it. They, we... We invariably ascribe something ultimate value. That and and if it's not God, then we're idolaters. Thinking, uh, the classic work, maybe infamous work, uh, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, who argued that what we need to do is remove religion from politics, from the from from the political realm. Therefore, we'll we'll end the. The religious wars of his day. He was writing during the time of the, the Thirty Years' War and the horrific, uh, bloodshed that was that had happened in the, uh, uh, the uh, the Counter Reformation. So we tried to do that in modern liberal and liberal with a capital L, modern liberal, uh, republics and and and, and governments. Uh, and what happened as a result? Uh, well, we find out that people don't have to have religion to kill each other. They, we, we, will, we, will, we will go to war over ideologies just as quickly. The 20th century shows that uh, whether it's communism or fascism, whatever is the matter, whatever one ascribes ultimate concern, uh, one the people will fight to the death over it and unfortunately now they don't have a a Christian framework in order to to conduct themselves and so some of the most horrendous atrocities that have ever been committed have been done so in the name of an ideology. All one has to do is look at the Pol Pot regime uh, to see what people are willing to do. So then, how then does the gospel inform and reframe uh, our approach to politics? How, how, In other words, how do, how do we build something positively here?
1: Yeah, I want to pick back up on a couple of your fascinating comments uh, and then you know, Thomas Hobbes, uh, in his book Leviathan, the first edition, had a picture on the cover. And it's interesting that while Hobbes is arguing if, if you get rid of strong forms of religion, you get rid of evil and war, the picture on the cover had uh, a man who represented the government, Leviathan, and on his torso are hundreds of people. The only thing you could see is the back of their heads. And this, this Leviathan is holding in his hand uh, something like the scepter that a pope would have and a, 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 an object that a government ruler would have. And the, the view that you're getting with the back of people's heads is the view you would get entering a cathedral. And he was transferring the mystical body of Christ, what originally was in the Lord's Supper, and then the Roman Catholic Church, he was transferring that to the nation, that there's this mystical body of the nation led by the government, and the government should be worshipped. And I also want to mention a guy named Auguste Comte, And the only thing anyone's ever heard of him probably uh, from their Intro to Philosophy class is that he was a positivist. Well, I wanna tell you a new fact about him. He tried, he was an atheist, and he tried to found a religion, an atheistic religion, that had its own calendar of great people. There was no Jesus, but there was Auguste Comte. Uh, It had uh, its own catechism and hymns and so forth. It was a spectacular failure in his day. But the belief in this religion was that if you could get rid of strong forms of supernatural religion, and strong forms of the nation state, you could get rid of evil. And that is absolutely wrong, as you pointed out. There- I mean,
0: isn't that the argument of the modern, uh, yes. the new, I mean, Richard yes. Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens. If we want to really get rid of of people flying planes into to buildings like a 9-11, what we need to do is get rid of religious belief as if, uh, then, then, I mean, I just, whenever I whenever I hear that type of argument, I just wonder, did you guys not pay attention to the 20th century? Or as you're pointing out, did you not pay attention to the French Revolution?
1: Yeah. And and, uh, so Kant may have lost the day in his own day. He got mocked with his new religion that he founded. But in the end, as you point out, he's won the day. So how does the gospel then, how do we appropriately bring our religious belief into our political realm, right? So inappropriate ways would be trying to install the gospel is the law of the land. It's awful. It would contradict the gospel. The gospel is freely given and freely received. So we want to give religious liberty. Um, well, I mentioned several good ways of bringing our religion into our politics. One is to just ask these three questions that correspond with the Bible's narrative, creation, fall, and redemption. First is, what is God's creational design for the realm of government and politics? That it would achieve justice for the various individuals and communities under its purview. Number two... In light of the fall, how has the political realm been twisted and misdirected? Number three, in light of the whole of biblical teaching, in light of the whole of natural law, creational design, moral order, um, how can we untwist what's been twisted and redirect what's been misdirected? And these are questions we need to ask and we need to be careful uh, after we answer them, which of these things should be put to work in the political realm and which should stay in the churchly realm the realm of society you don't want to enact laws for every moral teaching in the Bible but for some some moral teachings you you do those are universal moral teachings that are not premised upon a person being a believer and then there are other commands that the Bible gives that assume that you're a believer in order to to not do them like for example to be humble instead of proud you don't want to punish that in the political realm Um, everybody gets punished Now, that that is something that is disciplined in the ecclesial realm. And then finally, I think it's important to say that our our, our demeanor should be affected by our Christianity. That instead of being willing to just line up completely and totally with a political party and then toe the line whether you really believe it or not, tell half-truths and sometimes even lies just to get a short-term political victory, give full embraces to political leaders to whom only half embraces should be given or three-quarter embraces. I think those are bad things to do. That what we want to do is combine truth and grace. By truth, I mean we want to tell the truth about reality. We need to hold firm to our convictions in the political realm. And by grace, I mean we ought to have a disposition like Christ had, who even though he was the cosmic king of the universe, did not speak in a degrading and demeaning uh, fashion to people who are very different from him religiously and morally. Truth without grace makes us political um, bullies and jerks. Grace without without truth makes us political wimps and nonentities. But truth and grace together allows us to exhibit that great strength and witness that Christ himself exhibited.
0: Well, that's a great framework that you present there. I think that, you know, I I really appreciate how how clear you make that. Uh, And that gives a framework then for Christians to try to operate. However, and this is one of the things I really like about your book, uh, some would say an ounce of application is worth a pound of abstract and that sometimes what I need are good clear examples of what you're talking about. And one of the things you do your book addresses several hot button political issues. Um, So why is it important that, that Christians go ahead and wade into the fray and go ahead and engage and explore these topics Even though one may not come away from that unscathed.
1: Yeah, so there, you know, I've got in my file folder system 75 to 100 uh, public policy issues that come up regularly, and nobody can keep up with that many. But there are a few very important hot button issues that every Christian should be informed on. You should be going to websites such as the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, other websites. I mean, I I blog at uh, bruceashford.net on these issues. Al Mohler treats these issues in the briefing and there are other, other good resources, but uh, um, for example, religious liberty. All of us have a vested interest in religious liberty, that all people should be free to align their lives with their deepest convictions and to do so freely, openly, and without fear. Uh, the, uh, pro, uh, what does it mean to be pro-life? That's very important. People ought to find uh, ways of making that argument using On the one hand, sometimes scriptural reasoning, but on the other hand, sometimes legal, medical, and sociological forms of reasoning.
0: So you you would argue for natural law at the right time and right place? Absolutely.
1: I mean, you never know which kind of argument is going to be the right argument for the moment. I just think that neither argument should be ruled out. Some people want to rule out scriptural arguments ever being made. Other people want to rule out natural law arguments ever being made. I think both of those approaches are wrong. You just never know. What if I'm talking with a, a transgender activist? I do not have confidence that natural law reasoning is going to speak to that person. I've got a little bit more confidence that they might give willing suspension of disbelief and let me tell them the Bible's narrative.
0: Well, that kind of, and I'm interrupting here, mm-hmm. but it, you, you're segueing very well into the next question is, you know, what advice would you give li- our listeners on how to lovingly engage with uh, unbelievers, uh, those who are not Christians, in the public square? On, you know So now mm-hmm. you're talking to uh, someone who is, has got a very different worldview and it is a hot button issue and it's something that they have invested, uh, in fact they find their identity in this hot button issue often. Yeah. How do you lovingly approach them? Yeah, you know the
1: early church talked about uh, persuasoria and dissuasoria, the way of the open hand and the way of the closed fist. And the way the closed fist was when people made vicious attacks on Christianity, they had to um, rebuff those attacks in no uncertain terms. But they always wanted to p- parallel that uh, with persuasoria, which is the way of persuasion. And uh, we could call this a missionary approach where you try to find common ground with the person you're, you're talking to. And then from that common ground, untwist what's been twisted in their thinking, invite them into the Christian faith. And so we want to find ways of being persuasive. I think. For so, many, for so long, instead of trying to be persuasive, we've just reproved and rebuked people for not believing what we believe. How could you be so stupid? How could you be so bad as to believe such and such? And now that's what they're doing to us. How could you be so ignorant? How could you be so evil? And so we're going to want to persuade, and there are scriptural ways of persuading where you're open about your Christianity, and often those will be good because people already know that's when it's forming your views, and if you pretend that it's not, you're going to seem insincere, they're not going to listen to you and then there's also what the church often calls natural law forms of reasoning which is more neutral forms of reasoning and often those will be persuasive it just depends on
0: on the venue so speaking of the venue um you use the term post truth one of the one of the uh, realities of the 21st century is the cacophony of of sources there is this you know, there, there are so many different avenues and different platforms and formats in which people are getting um, various degrees of, of truthful information. Uh, how do you, how, what advice do you give to a young believer trying to navigate a world in which there is a lot of fake news?
1: Yeah, you, you know, you're right. We've gone from a pancake, uh, from a pyramid situation to a pancake situation when it comes to news media, that there used to be a pyramid, a hierarchy where where you had official news outlets and there were gatekeepers, editors and editors-in-chief, who had some form of accountability on what was published and not published. You don't have that anymore. Everything's been flattened. You've got websites, just startup websites with Yahoo's who started them up, uh, who get almost as many followers as an official uh, media outlet. And there's some positives to that, but there's also some real negatives. So I think, uh, how do we make sense of what's true and not true? Um, And you've got conspiracy theory sites. I think one thing is we pray actively for wisdom and discernment. Let's not forget to pray that God would give us wisdom and discernment. I think we want to do our news and opinion intake from a broad variety of outlets, some on the left, some on the right, and even on the right, multiple different outlets. And make sure that some of these are wise and diligent Christian thinkers who th- think from our our uh, pr- perspective. And and then finally, we want to find a way of recovering the beauty of the Thou shalt and the Thou shalt not in this age. That there is a transcendent framework for truth and goodness and beauty. And God's people are going to have to find a way of saying that that makes the world around us want it? Because for them, it is sometimes absurd. It's also frightening. Why would I want to rehire the God that we fired? And during the sexual revolution or even earlier. Who now has commanding stature in my life and says some things to me, especially sexually, that I don't like. Yeah. and we he actually
0: need, is trying to be God
1: we need to show them that God's desire for our life is one that will cause us to flourish
0: speaking of you know rehiring the God that we fired you you in this we're coming towards the end of our podcast, so I want to take us towards the end of your book in which you talk about the danger we've we we've always had the tendency to remake God in our image and that you say that we also uh, remake God in our image politically. Uh, what did you mean by that, and what's the remedy?
1: Yeah, so uh, to be brief, I think one of the things we do is we come to political conclusions by listening to secular outlets, and then we uh, reason backwards from those conclusions to the Bible to try to get um, evidence that that was true. Whatever you know, so and so curly brows commentator yelled about for an hour last night. Or mocked about, or whatever, whatever side of the aisle you're on, um, and so it's something in the secular world that's called confirmation bias. You take what you already believe and and go back and read the Bible and selectively and and pull some things out. And so when you do that, you re- remake God in your image politically, and that violates God's godhood. And instead, we want to let God's revealing word, His powerful revealing words, speak for itself. We want to saturate ourselves with it like Deuteronomy 6 says we want to write it in the doorposts of the gate and uh, on our hands we want to read it when we're lying down and sitting up and standing and sitting in other words all day long and we want to understand this beautiful and powerful narrative of God interacting with his people and then we want to prayer for consider after being soaked in scripture how can that help me speak into the political realm and make decisions in the political realm and democratic republic where I have an opportunity to make a difference.
0: So it sounds to me that you're saying rather than interpret God through the lens of my echo chamber, mixing my metaphors there, uh, you're saying affirming the sufficiency of Scripture, that Mm -hmm. we we start with the Bible and who the Bible reveals God to be, and then that judges uh, Mm -hmm. all of our political endeavors. It's a great book. Dr. Ashford. That's one of the reasons we're using it uh, in the mentorship of the Bush Center this year. The book is Letters to an American Christian. We've been talking with Dr. Bruce Ashford. This is the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Ken Keithley, uh, hoping that you have a great day.